I hope you've had some time this last week to consider and to think and to, to meditate upon that which you are thankful about. There are probably a lot of things that we could be thankful about, even in dark moments, depending on what you are viewing and what your uh, perspective is, you can find things to be thankful about. One thing that I hope that we, if you are a Christian here this morning, are thankful for is that his grace reaches me. That was a, a perfect song to lead into the lesson uh, this morning because we are going to be talking about grace. We're going to be talking about the power of grace and what grace does to transform us into who God calls us to be. The book of Titus, if you want to turn your Bibles there, chapter 2 and 3 has a rather lengthy discussion about God's grace. And it describes God's grace in a lot of ways, and sometimes I would say he describes grace perhaps in ways we don't always tend to think about grace. Uh, grace is a teacher. Grace challenges us. Grace is something that uh, unites us as, as humanity and as, as followers of Christ. But grace also lays before us a challenge to be a certain kind of people. And uh, we're going to look at what that challenge is. We're going to look at what grace is calling us to be and what grace is instructing us to be. Uh, before we look at it, look at Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read the first three verses. And in this, notice the transformation that is being described from who we were outside of Christ to what we are called or challenged to be inside of Christ. Um, if you want to back up to the very last verse of chapter 2, we'll start there actually. It says in uh, chapter 2 and verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them. All right, so, so anytime you're reading and you come across something like that, uh, recognize that, that what Paul's doing in this letter is a little different than what he does in a lot of letters. This letter is not written simply to a church where Paul is speaking as the, the preacher or the prophet to that church and telling them what to do. Rather, this is a letter written to Titus, who is the preacher speaker. So you'll notice this a lot as you read the book of, of uh, Titus, and you'll see it in First and Second Timothy a lot too, is instead of telling the church what to do, he tells Titus what to tell the church what to do. Uh, and, and so he'll uh, go into some lengthy discussions about grace and about the transformed life, and he'll say, hey, tell them these things, remind them of these things, challenge them about these things, reprove them about these things, and don't let them uh, despise you, or don't do so with authority, because Paul is gifting Titus with the authority to speak on these matters. And so you'll see that quite a bit. This is, this is telling a preacher what to preach. And because of that, for me, it becomes kind of an important text. Uh, anytime I'm seeing Paul telling a preacher what to preach, it kind of, uh, my, my ears open up a little bit. And I think, okay, this is something maybe I should pay attention to. Uh, here's what he's telling him to remind the church to do in verse chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And pay attention to that word, because it's going to pop up a good bit in our lesson this morning. Be ready for every good deed. Verse uh, 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. It's like, remind the church to be obedient people, to be ready to go help people engage in good deeds, not to speak evil about other people, but to be kind and to be considerate and to search for ways to do good. Tell the church to do that, because that's not what a lot of people have tended to be. In fact, even, even at that church, what he's going to say is prior to committing their lives to Christ, that's not the type of people they were. When you look at verse 3, 
This is the way he describes their former life. He says, For we were all once foolish ourselves, disobedient instead of obedient, uh, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It's like instead of forgiving, we would have hatred and, and we would have desire for revenge. Instead of speaking well of other people, we would curse our enemies. Like you can look, there was a change that took place in Christ. If you look at the verse 3, he says, that's what you were. Well, encourage them to be verses 1 and 2. And you see this huge, like, polar opposite description of what the life is supposed to be. Well, what causes that sort of transformation to go from the people in verse 3 to the people you're supposed to be in verses 1 and 2? To go from the disobedient to the obedient? To go from the people who hate their enemies to the people who love their enemies? To go from the people who uh, are, are uh, often self-serving and, and, and ruled by their passions to the people who will deny their passions in order to serve others? What causes that transformation? Well, I think you get a pretty good hint at what it is by looking at the paragraph right before this one and the paragraph right after it. This little description of the transformed life is bookended or is sandwiched between two very similar discussions of grace. In fact, there's going to be a lot of the same language and a lot of the same uh, descriptions used in the verses right before it as in the verses right after it. And this is what those, those passages, that this understanding of grace will culminate in. It'll culminate in changing your life. Grace changes you. It really does. Grace is something that it's not just like... Yay, I received it. I'm happy I can go on my way now and do whatever I want. Like, grace actually is transformative. At least that's the way the Bible des describes it. And, and I think as a church and as the people of God, you cannot go wrong by emphasizing grace. There are ways that doing so can make people uncomfortable. In fact, I've, I've seen many people, many Christians uh, all across the theological spectrum who I think get uncomfortable or perhaps even afraid of grace. Um, you might think of all the things to be afraid of, why grace? You know, be afraid of punishment or something, not grace. But I think considering grace and what it actually is and what it actually means for the people who receive it and for the people who teach it and, and seek to provide it, it, it can be a scary thing. You know, if, for example, I know people who they're worried that if you emphasize grace too much, that people will become less obedient. If you think, well, if, if you, all you do is emphasize grace, then people are going to think, well, then I don't have to do anything. You know, God's going to be gracious to me. He's going to forgive me, even if I'm a sinner. Even if I fail, he's just going to be gracious to me. I'm not saved based on what I do. I'm saved based on his, his grace. And so it doesn't matter what I do. I can live any kind of life I want because I have grace. And they don't want people to think that. They don't want Christians to become like antinomians, people who have no law or restrictions in their lives. And they're afraid that grace will encourage that. When you read this passage, it's actually kind of fascinating. Paul thinks it does the exact opposite. But there is a fear, and you can understand that fear if you think about it. If you say, you know, to your children, I'm going to love you no matter what. I will always love you. That's probably a good thing to say. But at the same time, if they hear that and think, really? So I can do whatever I want and you'll still love me? And uh, you, don't, you don't want them to go that direction. You know, it's like, yes, I'll love you, but still do the right thing. Uh, but there is a fear that grace can cause rebellion. There's also the fear that grace 
will lead to more and more oppression and, and cruelty. And what I mean by that is when it comes to sin, not every sin is the same. Not everyone sins in the exact same way. And I think there are some people who, when you look at what the Bible teaches about grace, they often view the world in terms of oppression and who the oppressors are and who the oppressed are. And they love the idea of giving grace to the oppressed because, well, we all get that. Like the people who have been mistreated are the people you most want to give grace to. The problem with Jesus is that he extends grace to all. And that means even the people who have abused, even the people who have done the wrong to others are people who have the opportunity for forgiveness and for grace. And that's a scary thought too, because you think, well, what if you just forgive the cruel people who have oppressed other people? Then all of a sudden they don't think that their oppression is that big of a deal because they are forgiven so easily because of it, because God loves them. All of a sudden you think, well, that's a graceful doctrine is a doctrine that keeps the status quo and that keeps oppression in place. Grace is a doctrine that forgives the people who have mistreated others. It, it, one of the things that Jesus says, uh, it's actually one of like the harshest things he says that, that to uh, some of the religious rulers of his day, is that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. And when you think about tax collectors and prostitutes, prostitutes are often those kind of on the bottom largely those who have been oppressed, those who, because of horrible life circumstances, have been forced to live a type of life they don't want to live. People take advantage of them in that situation to where they, uh, end, up, they end up with very little control over who they are, what they want to do, and it's, it's a terrible and sad state. Tax collectors, on the other hand, are often those who aren't at the bottom of society. They're doing quite well. They're usually pretty wealthy. They usually have some power. They usually have inroads with, uh, with uh, Rome. And, you know, maybe not, maybe not their fellow Jews like them all that much. But they, have, they would be considered the oppressors. They often rip people off in order to get more money for themselves. They have teamed up with the enemies of Israel in order to get more money for themselves. And so you have two very different groups described there. And what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is actually for both. Grace can be for both. And again, that's a frightening thought. We might like the idea of grace to the person on the bottom, but to the oppressor, maybe not so much. Uh, we're afraid that grace will either encourage rebellion or grace will encourage us to continue the status quo. And I would say I get both of those fears, but I do think both of those fears are rooted in a misunderstanding of what grace is. Um, grace is not a call to continue to live as you are. Grace is a challenge. Grace is transformative. Grace is something that should take you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Grace is something that takes you from chapter 3 and verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lusts and pleasures, spending life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Two, chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2, obedient, ready for good deeds, maligning no one, peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. Grace and repentance are not at odds. Grace and obedience are not at odds. Grace and good works are actually on the same team. Uh, and that's what, uh, what Titus is going to be told to preach. That's what Paul is going to try to demonstrate. So I want to look at, a, at the passages uh, right before that section, and then look at the passages right after that section, and then see perhaps what it is we can learn about the way that grace transforms us. 
Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. And I'm going to try to show, kind of as we look through here, some of the similarities between these paragraphs. But look at chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice some of those words, uh, the word that the grace appeared salvation. Uh, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 4, you're going to have grace described in slightly different terms, but I think basically a restatement of the same thing in chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. You have something appearing that brings salvation. In chapter 2 and verse 11, it's the grace of God. In chapter 3 and verse 4, it's the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind. When you're talking about God's kindness and love for mankind, mankind, by the way, who is sinful, who was just described in verse 3 in some terrible ways, yet God still loves them, that's grace. You're seeing the embodiment of grace when you look at God's love for mankind. You're seeing the embodiment of grace in the realest terms in the person of Jesus who came and he, he spent time with people who acted like chapter 3 and verse 3, who offered salvation, who offered the kingdom, who offered a better way of life, who offered a relationship with God to people who by no means were deserving of it. It's like when you look at the life we were living, and then God, through his kindness, through his love for mankind, through his grace, appeared, he brought salvation. Chapter 2 in verse 11 says it appeared bringing salvation to all men. Now that's a fascinating idea that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. I, I don't think that that's saying explicitly that therefore, and by the way, the word men would just be the word people, uh, that all human beings are necessarily saved, uh, you know, and going to heaven. I, I do think what it's saying is when he came, he didn't look at who was on the top or who was on the bottom. He didn't look at uh, who was Jew and who was Gentile. He didn't look at how much money you had. He didn't look at whether you were male or female. He didn't look at where you lived. He didn't look at what you've done. He looked at you as a person who is valuable, who is created in the likeness and image of God, and who God loves, who God is extending his kindness and grace towards. And because of that, salvation is for everybody. There is not a person who you can find in this world and say, oh, okay, they're... They are excluded from the salvation of God because of the sin they committed in their past or because of uh, where they're from or because of what they look like or because they don't have enough money or because they're not important or because they're on the top and we're the oppressor or because they're on the bottom and we're oppressed. The salvation that God offers is for absolutely everyone. That is an act of grace. If it wasn't based on grace, if it were based on works, then you couldn't say it was for everybody. It would be for those who have done enough good, and on the bottom you have all those who haven't done enough good, and uh, then he's going to divvy all that up and calculate it and figure, and figure out who has the opportunity for the grace of God. But that's not the way this is pictured. It's for everyone. So here's the point. If you're here today and you're hearing this lesson, it's for you. Uh, if you have a neighbor, it's for them. If you have a coworker, it's for them. If you know a human being who is a human being, it's for them. Uh, and God has not excluded them from the offer of grace and salvation. But notice that grace and salvation, they are not dormant and passive. 
Rather, they are instructive and challenging. Notice verse 12 of chapter 2. This is what the grace of God did when it appeared. And again, if you're thinking of the grace of God in terms of Jesus, you can see this very clearly by reading through his life. But in verse 2, this is what grace does. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the age to come. But in this present age, it causes us to say no to certain things and yes to certain things. You say no to ungodliness, to that which is uh, far from God or unlike God, and to that which is temporal and just whatever pleasure you all of a sudden have in this life, you go searching after that and that pleasure becomes your God. Grace tells you to say no to that. Grace is actually teaching and instructing and challenging you to live a different kind of life. In fact, you're going to live a life that is sensible, that is righteous, and that is godly, that seeks to show the goodness of God in the world around you and to invite the goodness of God into yourself. That's what grace is trying to get you to do. And you'll never, ever, ever be able to do that uh, perfectly. You know, grace is going to help you along the way. You're not going to be able to do that without flaw. You will be flawed. But grace will provide opportunity for a completely clean slate to live a completely new kind of life. In fact, when you look at chapter 3 and verse 5, he'll talk about the same type of thing. He'll say, he saved us. He saved us, not on the basis of works or deeds which we have done in righteousness. Why not on the basis of those? Because you can't. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 3, that's who you were. Your deeds have not earned you anything before God. It's to all men. It's not to men who have only done certain number of good deeds. The grace of God is opening the door to everybody. And so it's not on the basis of deeds which you have done. And what a tragedy if it was. This is one of the clearest ways... uh, in my mind, to think about the fact that salvation is not based on the deeds that you have done. Imagine, uh, imagine a faithful, godly missionary who has spent his life in dangerous world circumstances, who has spent his life uh, in poverty, who has spent his life uh, suffering for the sake of righteousness. He has learned the language of the land where he is living. He has faithfully continued to teach the the love of God and to, to challenge sinfulness and to cause and bring about repentance. He's planted churches. He has the Bible memorized in Greek and in Hebrew and everything else. And, and he is someone who, like, when you think about someone who in every way possible, truly lives out the call of Christ. This is the man you think of. And he's an old man. And he's been doing this for 60 years. And he's someone who is like, you can look up to him and you, can, uh, you, you would grow by, by learning from him and discipling under him. All right, you take that guy. And then you take a person who has never been to a church service, They've spent their entire life in selfishness. Uh, They have been cruel to the people in their lives. They uh, are basically living uh, away from everyone who used to know and love them because they have been so untrustworthy. They've been a thief. They've been a drug addict. And then they hear the message of Jesus, and they hear the gospel. And I actually, I know of people who have had this type of radical transformation, and they become a Christian. And they give their life to Christ. They're baptized into Christ. And while they're still dripping wet, they have never done a thing in their life for Jesus. They haven't 
washed any feet. They haven't helped anyone who is in need. They haven't been to a church service. They haven't read a verse of the Bible. They have done nothing. And yet those two people are brothers and co-heirs in the grace of God. One who has done everything for Jesus, the other who has done nothing for Jesus, and yet they're both saved. Why? Because God's not looking at the works that you've done in righteousness to accumulate over time so that you can finally figure out whether or not you're worthy of his grace. That's not how grace works. Grace frees you from the bondage of sin so that you can become who Christ is calling you to be. We, we do not do good works to receive grace. We receive grace to then go do good works. We are transformed by grace to become people who then go out and live the life that God is calling us to be. And that's what Paul's going to go on to say. But if you continue reading chapter 3 and verse 5, he's going to say, It wasn't according to deeds or works that we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy— by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what he's going to say is he saved you not because or not based on your works, but based on his own mercy. When you start just looking at the words that are used here to describe what God has done for us, you see the word grace. You see the, the word his kindness. You see the word his love for mankind. You see the word his mercy. You're starting to get the picture that the one who is taking the initiative in all of this in extending grace and kindness and love and mercy is God, and the people who are undeserving but grateful, hopefully, recipients of that are, are us. And he's saying he saved you based on those things. And when you were washed with water and reborn through that and renewed through the Holy Spirit, he is giving you a fresh start, a brand new world to live in, a brand new life to live, wherein you can live in the way that grace teaches you. You can deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Like that's, that's what that transformative process does. When you were baptized and when you were regenerated and when you were renewed through the Holy Spirit, you were called to be a different kind of person. By the way, also notice that Paul, when he, whenever he's talking about grace as opposed to, uh, to something, He's never talking about grace as opposed to baptism, or he's never talking about grace as opposed to obeying Jesus. He's talking about grace as opposed to works, which we consider to be that means of justification. If I do enough of these things, then all of a sudden God will owe me. And that's what Paul, I think, has a problem with. He has a problem with grace uh, being compared to something like circumcision, where you use a, a boundary marker to determine, based on uh, your observance of the law, who is in and who is out. And Paul's saying, no, that's not, that's not it either. Uh, your allegiance to Christ becomes the boundary marker that makes you a person, uh, makes you part of the people of God. And so, through this process, you find your identity in Christ, not based on how good you are or where you are in society, but based on his grace, his love, his kindness, and his mercy. What this grace does is it does save us. It does uh, challenge us and teach us to live in a new way. It also gives us hope. When you look at verse 13 of chapter 2, going back uh, earlier, he says, looking to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we have a hope that we are now looking for because of grace. 
Grace gives us salvation, it gives us teaching, and it gives us hope of that which is to come. You see this hope again described in chapter 3 and verse 7, where he says, So that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You are adopted as a child of hope. You are an heir of hope. And God is providing hope for you that not only in this life are you challenged to live a certain way, but you will be rewarded with eternal life now, but also in the age to come. You have hope of the appearing of Jesus who will right all of those wrongs. And when we see uh, oppression and oppressed and all that, you won't see those things when Christ returns and he makes all things right and makes all things new. You are living now in light of the age to come. And that's where our ethics come from as followers of Jesus. We are demonstrating now the power of the age to come, the power of heaven in the world that we live in. And that's why we strive now to live in the way that God calls us to, because a day is going to come when we have hope that Jesus will right those wrongs and will make this world what we know God intended it to be. And if we have that hope, then we can begin to live in the way that God has called us to. And that means no longer in the evil deeds, but now committing in, or acting in uh, the good deeds. If you look at verse uh, 14, notice both of these sections that have talked about grace appearing, bringing salvation, uh, g- teaching us to live in a new way and bringing us a new life, giving us hope of that which is to come. They both end with an admonition and a call to change your deeds and now live in those good deeds. Uh, When you look at verse 14, this is what Christ did. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Redeemed you from the lawless deed, purified you, made you his own special people to go out and do good deeds. Grace is the call to do deeds. Uh, When you look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 8, getting back to telling the preacher what to preach, this is the conclusion of all the stuff that we've been saying. Like, if Paul wanted to summarize the lesson that I'm trying to preach right now, coming from these passages, this is his summary statement. And I guess this would be my summary statement. This is what I'm hoping uh, that we'll see grace causes in us and grace can challenge us to do. Chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And considering and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So he's telling Titus, speak about this stuff confidently. So that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Verse 9, but ex- avoid or exclude foolish controversies, genealogies, strife about disputes about the law, which are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a second, uh, first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverse and sinning and being self-condemned. Notice he ends by saying, so go out and preach these things so that those who have received God's grace will be zealous to engage in good deeds. And don't waste your time with things that don't really matter. Keep your priorities in your teaching right. Don't spend your time arguing and fighting with one another, being factious with one another about foolish controversies, genealogy strife. I've, I've, in my experience as a Christian, uh, maybe this is anecdotal, but uh, I have come to think that a lot of times people who emphasize grace less are more likely to get involved in the foolish controversies. The people who forget what it's all about 
will start to focus on the small things that it's not really about. And so grace becomes one of those ways to absolve us of the need to get into every debate about pointless minutia, to become factious and divisive with one another, but instead to recognize that the grace of God has appeared. The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind has appeared, and he saved us. Not on deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of water with free generation, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are things that are more important, and grace is one of those things, and it challenges us to live a different kind of life. And if we can help you to be thankful for God's grace, if we can help you to begin to live that transformed life where you are zealous for good deeds because of the grace of God, out of gratitude, a thankfulness, and appreciation, if that can move you to be, then begin to act in a new kind of way, that's what God is calling you to do. That's what grace is calling and challenging you to do. And if we can help anyone do that here this morning, please let it be known. You can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come sit on the front row, but please do so while we stand and as we sing.